humbled to have the opportunity to to spend some time in the Word of God with you. I'm thankful to Pastor Paul and the elders for giving me this opportunity. And and as I studied the passage that we are going to look at this morning, I recognized that I am out of my league as I attempt to to look at something so glorious and profound and hope-filled and life-transforming that it, uh, it, it's difficult to, to bring the fullness of this text out to you. But I hope that by the time we are done, you will be uh, like the writer of the book of Jude at the end, giving glory and praise to our God. I'd like to invite you to turn to Jude this morning. It's the second to last book in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the last two verses of that book, Jude 24 and 25. But before we do that, I would like to walk you kind of through the book of Jude for a moment to take a look at the context in which these verses come to us. And if you'll remember, it was about a year and a half ago that Pastor Paul spent three weeks going through the first ten verses of the book of Jude. And you may recall that it was written by a man who was the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. And that Jude, in writing this letter, had intended to write a Christmas letter to the people who he was writing to. He says in verse one, or verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. He wanted to write a letter about the good news of great joy that had come to all the people. He wanted to write of peace on earth and mercy mild, how God and sinners had been reconciled. But something had stopped Jude in his tracks. As you follow along in verse 3, the second half, he says, But I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And, And why did Jude make this about faith and write this letter as opposed to the other one? Well, if you read the letter, you will find out that like A cancer, false teachers had infiltrated the body of Christ. For he says in verse 4 that certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They were ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And just as a shepherd cannot sit idly by enjoying his dinner while a wolf enters the flock... So Jude, the shepherd and overseer of these people, could not sit by as these false teachers were infiltrating his flock. And so he calls them to attention and he puts them on the alert. And he appeals to them to stand up and to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because false teaching is not something to be put up with, not something to cozy up to, not something to be taken lightly. For the consequences of false teachers and their teaching are eternal consequences. And notice that he points to two things that characterize these teachers. He says that one, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. These are the kind of teachers who say that God's grace has freed us from the curse of the law. But that God's grace is willing to to cover all of our disobedience to the law as we continue to run away from him and live in license. And that we are able as people who are in Christ to to live a life of self-indulgence and sensuality. There are people who say that God's grace is able to free us from the punishment of sin, but it is not able to free us from the power of sin. There are those who 
preach that God can justify and declare believers righteous, but that his grace is not able to sanctify them and to help them live a righteous life. These men had a form of godliness, but they denied its life-transforming power and lived lives of sensuality. And Jude goes along and he gives examples from the Old Testament to these believers, showing the consequences of following this type of teaching. He points them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember the story in the Old Testament, how these people had indulged in sexual immorality and that God had come in fire and burned those cities. And Jude says they serve as an example of those who will undergo a punishment of eternal fire. He points back to the Old Testament to Balaam. And if you remember that Balaam was one who was willing to sell out the people of God. For financial gain, he was seeking to, to lead them astray into sexual immorality. God had protected the people, but it says in Jude, he says that they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to follow Balaam's error. He describes them in verse 12 as shepherds who feed only themselves. So instead of feeding the flock of Jesus Christ, they have come to fleece the flock. They followed their own ungodly passions and they were worldly people devoid of the Spirit of God. Jude also describes these false teachers as those who had denied their only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They denied the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of His Word. They also denied the authority that was given to those who were to lead the people of God whom Christ had put over them. And he points back to the Old Testament again. In verse 5, he points to the Israelites who had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. But how when they were supposed to enter the land, if you remember, ten spies had gone in and given a bad report. And instead of following and trusting in the command of God, they led the people in disobedience to God. And all of that generation died in the wilderness. He points to the angels, the fallen angels, who followed after their false teacher, Satan, rebelling against the authority of God. And he says that now God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He points back to Korah. If you remember how Korah led 250 people in rebellion against the authority of Moses and Aaron that God had given them. And those people and all of their families and all who were associated with them were swallowed up by the earth. And it was again pointing to the judgment that comes to those who do not submit to their only master and Lord Jesus Christ and deny his authority. And so when Jude comes to these last verses, his people must have been wondering, well, if the, if the perfect angels in heaven who are before the throne of God could fall and deny their only Master and Lord, if the Old Testament people of God who had been delivered out of Egypt and seen all of God's miraculous signs and wonders that he had done for them, would not follow God faithfully to the end. If even remembering back to Adam and the perfect life in the garden, if Adam could fall, if the angels could fall, if the Israelites could fall, how am I going to be kept until the end? How am I going to be kept from stumbling and falling into unbelief? And for us today, if you look around at the culture in which we live, if you have your eyes open, you will see that there is a tsunami of sin that is enveloping our culture. 
There's a tidal wave of moral depravity that continues to rise. There's a sea of sensuality and a turning it away and a despising of the word of God in our schools, on our televisions, in homes throughout our country. People parade their sin and their rebellion against God through our streets. And the shocking thing is that much of the church is not far behind. For an ever-increasing number of false teachers lead the parade. And the church today is welcoming Balaam and Korah and the residents of Sodom into her midst and calling them brothers and sisters. And as the world presses in around us, trying to squeeze us into its mold, and as the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you and your children and your grandchildren, what is the hope that we have against such a great horde as this? How will we continue to fight the good fight these people must have been asking? How can we run the race and keep the faith and one day come into the presence of God in eternal life forever? Does Jude point them to themselves? Does he say, now people, I want you to have a a New Year's resolution. I want you to to, to promise to, to keep your kids until they walk into the glorious kingdom. I want you to look within yourself to find strength and you yourself are going to make your way there. Well, Jude does not neglect the part that we have to play and we won't focus on this this morning, but in verse 20 and 21, he gives them four exhortations. He exhorts them to build themselves up in the most holy faith. He exhorts them to pray in the Holy Spirit. He calls them to keep themselves in the love of God and to eagerly await the the mercy that is coming to them in Jesus Christ. But if this was all that our hope was founded on, on our ability to do these things, we would fall far short of the mark. For where is the unshakable foundation that we can build our faith upon? When we pray, who is the one that we go to in prayer? And Jude, at the end of this letter, then points them to the only hope for the believer in a world like they lived in and the world like we live in today. So I want you to notice what he says in verse 24. He begins, now to him who is able. Now to him who is able. We need to look to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Corey Tenboom once said, if you look around at the world and spend your time looking around at the world, you will get distressed. If you look within and at your own strength, you will get depressed. But if you look to Christ, you will find rest. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we are weak. If I look at my own faults and my own struggles with sin and my own unbelief and I continue to look to me for my hope, I will find myself filled with doubts and fears and confronting my own failures and wondering if I will ever continue to persist until the end. But the Bible consistently calls us to look elsewhere. And this morning, if you are struggling with unbelief, I want to invite you to look to him. Look to him who is able. Say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you have come here with a heavy heart this morning and you battled depression, where is the answer? It's not in secular psychology and it's not in your own ability. It's looking to him who is able. If you struggle with sexual sin, 
There are some of you here who spend time looking at the internet pornography and you are struggling with this and it's dragging you down. What is the answer but to look to Him? Is your marriage having trouble? Is your body breaking down? Are you feeling like you're going to fall away from the faith and you're barely holding on and you wonder if you can make it because the battle is too fierce and the difficulties are too great and the enemy is too strong? This morning I say, look to Him who is able. And if you'll take the time to read your Bible, this is what all of the great men of God did. And as you remember the passage from 2 Chronicles 20 that was read for us this morning, as the Moabites and Ammonites were coming against Judah, what did Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah do? It says in verse 4 of chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles that the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. In verse 9, Jehoshaphat is praying and he says, Lord, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plagues or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and we will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save. Verse 12, he says, our God, we have no power to face this vast horde that is attacking us. We must admit that today. In and of ourselves, we have no power to face this vast horde. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The hymn writer said, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He is my only hope and stay. The psalmist in Psalm 21 does exactly the same thing. He says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. And I say, where is your trust this morning? Where are you looking to? Are you looking to him who is able? And notice what the psalmist focuses on when he looks to the Lord. He looks to the Lord who is the maker of heaven and earth. And cannot the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who made electrons and elephants, the one who made the tiniest particles of DNA and the distant galaxies in all their glory, the antelope on the plains below and the angels in heaven above, cannot this God take care of his children? Is not the God who sustains the heavens and the earth by the glory of his great power, able to sustain you. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 40, where he says, To whom then will you compare me, says the Lord, that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them each by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. And if God knows the name of every star in the heavens, billions upon billions, know that he knows your name too. And know that if by his great power and mighty strength not a star is missing from the heavens, so none of his children will go missing from his flock. God watches over his children and he is able to keep them. 
Notice how, how Jude refers to God at the beginning of verse 25. He refers to him as the only God. Because you see, if we were like the Greeks and we believed there was a great pantheon of gods, and these gods were in battle and against war with each other, and we didn't know who was going to win, then could we trust this God? But Jude says, no, this is not the reality that we see. This is not the reality that we live in. God is the only God, definite article. The only God, there is no other. Paul, in writing to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, calls him the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. In 1 Timothy 6.15, he says, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no other God. And if you call this God your Father, He is able to keep you. Now when Jude says, Now to Him who is able to keep you, who is the you that He is referring to? Well, He talks about them in, in verse 1. In the second half where he says, To those who are called the beloved in God the Father who are kept for Jesus Christ. So the ones that God keeps from stumbling are those who are his beloved children. And when you go for a walk with your children, and you have small children who are going along with you, and you are walking along a path and the path becomes rocky and difficult, do you allow your children to fall on their face if you can help it? No, I remember those days and we would walk and it's almost an instantaneous reaction. When the going became difficult, the kids would look and the hand would go out and you would walk together hand in hand. And if the going became too steep and they became too tired, what would happen? Would we drag them along the ground? No, we would pick them up. And we would hold them in our arms. We would place them on our shoulders and we would carry them along the way. Christian, God has called you to walk a narrow path. He's called you to walk along the hard road. It's not always going to be easy. There will be difficulties. There will be struggles. There will be trials. But is God less of a father than you or I? Will he abandon his children when they get too weary along the way? Jesus in John 10, verse 29, talks about the Father, and he says, My Father is greater than all. My Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he's speaking of his children. When you place yourself in the hand of God through Jesus Christ in a relationship with him, God will never let you go. He will take you through the difficulties. He will take you to the struggles. Let us look to him. Let me ask you this morning, does God begin a job and not complete it? Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Is God the kind of father who is not able to guard his treasured possession that was purchased with the blood of his own son? Absolutely not. 
For Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, listen to this, and just, just let this become your hope and your trust and your confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is also interceding for us. Do you believe that this morning? If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, night and day before the throne of God, he neither slumbers nor sleeps, and he intercedes on behalf of his people. Earlier in the chapter, it says that the Holy Spirit is interceding for believers with groans that word cannot express. And will God the Father not answer the perfect prayers of his own Son that are prayed perfectly in accordance with his own will? If God is the interceding for you, if Jesus is before the throne night and day, is there any way that God will let your foot slip? And Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he comes with a resounding no. He says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and I hope that you are this morning, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe this this morning? This is great news. You know, Christian, through many dangers, toils, and snares, you have already come. It is grace that has brought you safe this far. And it is grace that will lead us home. And this is where Jude focuses next. Because not only is God able to keep his people from stumbling into unbelief so that they will not make it to the celestial city in heaven, but Jude now points their eyes forward and he says to look forward in faith and expectation to your glorious future. Do you do that on a regular basis? Do you look forward in faith and expectation to the glorious future that God has promised us? Listen to his words. He says he is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, the word to present you is, is, is really a, in, in contrast to the word stumble. To present you is to, to set you before or to stand you before the presence of God. So God will not let you stumble, but he will pick you up and set you there and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Faultless, blameless before God. Now, we must ask, how is this possible? How is it possible that people like you and me, who are by nature blamers, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we blame one another for our sin. We blame the government. We blame others around us. We blame our circumstances. We are by nature blamers. 
And we are also by nature blameworthy. We must understand that, that God knows everything. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And that's not only the words of praise. But as we have torn down one another, as we have used our words to destroy other people and to lie and to deceive, God knows every word. God knows every thought you have ever thought. Every attitude, every motive of your heart, every action. He has seen it all. He's the one whose word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And the Bible says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all of us are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And how can we be declared blameless in his presence? The one who alone dwells in unapproachable light, how will we come into his presence? Who no one has ever seen or can see because we are too tainted with sin. And if any one of us, myself included, was to take all of the sin that I have committed against a holy God and was to list it on a list, the list would start here and would go up into the highest of the heavens. Because the Bible tells us in Isaiah 64 that even our most righteous act outside of Jesus Christ is like filthy rags before a holy God. God has commanded us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for every single waking moment of your entire life, you have never done that, and neither have I. And if God is a just God, will he not condemn those who come into his presence as we stand naked before him? With all of our shame and condemnation, how is it that people can be presented blameless in his presence? And Jude here gives us the answer. Because God is not only the judge, but he is the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, religion would say to you that if you do enough good, if you live a righteous enough life, you will be accepted before God. And anybody who's honest with himself knows that is not true. And that's why religion creates miserable and, and angry people. And people who judge others all the time. Religion is dead because it's just not true. And we know it in our deepest hearts. We know that in and of ourselves we are not worthy. And so we suppress the truth about God, trying to put him out of our minds. But Christianity says no. God is not here and you are here and you have to work your way up to him. Christianity says God is infinitely holy and we are infinitely unworthy. Dead in sin. So what is the hope for us that we would be presented blameless in his presence? Well, because we could not make our way to God, God made his way to us. Is this not the story of Christmas? Because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son that whoever so believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
In Galatians 4, 4, we hear these great words. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the weight and the crushing burden of our sin and the guilt that the law shows to us that we might receive adoption as sons. So salvation comes to us from God the Father through Christ the Son. And it's that same way that we will be presented blameless before the presence of his glory. Because Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's through Christ and our relation to him and our belief in what he did on our behalf that the perfect, sinless son of God came to earth and was condemned as a criminal and hung on a cross and God poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus Christ so that those who would look to him would be given Christ's righteousness and he would be the sin bearer for them so that when they came into the presence of God, God would see Christ's righteousness and he would declare us blameless in the presence of his glory. And so those of us who are hostile to God, it's through Christ, Romans 5.11, that we have received reconciliation with God. Romans 5.1 says it's through Christ that we have peace with God. Romans 5.21, it's through Christ that we can receive everlasting life. This is not in ourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by our works, lest any man should boast. And so it's not what we have done, but what Christ has done on our behalf and belief in him that allows us to come into his presence. And then we, like the hymn writer, can say, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And then the question must be asked, what will happen to those who come into the presence of this holy God apart from Jesus Christ? Do you want to stand naked and exposed and have all of your deeds judged? Spending your whole life sinning against an infinitely holy God is an infinitely punishable offense. In 2 Thessalonians, we read of the terrible fate of those who would come into this presence without Christ. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. If you are still living apart from Christ this morning, you don't have to stay there. If you will confess your sin, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus said, all those who look to me, I will never turn aside. If you would believe in Jesus Christ, every single rotten thing that you have done in your entire existence would be forgiven and the slate would be wiped clean. 
You would be welcomed into the family of God, adopted into his family, and given all of the blessings that come with that, eternal blessings in Christ. I say, turn to him today so that you don't have to come into his presence without Christ. As we come to a a close, notice he says they will come into his presence with great joy. Can you imagine that day? Not only all of our sins forgiven, but our, our, our sin dealt with entirely. We will not only be freed from the punishment of sin, but we will be freed from the presence of sin. We will never utter another foolish word that breaks someone's heart. We will never again yell at our kids and feel the remorse of that hurt that happened because of what we did. We will never think a wrong thought. We will never come into the presence of God to worship Him thinking of ourselves. All of our pride will be gone. All of our unworthiness, every single thing that we could ever, it would be wiped away. Blameless, not only declared blameless, but but without sin. Never to sin again. It'll be great joy. And not only that, the Bible says in Psalm 16 that in his presence is fullness of joy. We will be in the presence of the one who is absolutely perfect in all his perfections. We will be in the presence of God the Father, whom Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 17 says that the Lord your God is in the midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exalt over you with loud singing. Can you imagine? You come into the presence of the Father and he's rejoicing over his children with loud singing. And then you you see God the Son And Jesus, who was the founder and the perfecter and the author of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, all of it will be finished and all of the glorious plan of God will come to fulfillment and Jesus will be there and we will enjoy his presence forever in great joy. And as we come into that place, the angels begin to lift up their voice, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands in perfect harmony, lifting their voices to God, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then we will not be able to help ourselves. And we, along with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them, will say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. In light of this, what is Jude's response? He calls us to adore him who is worthy of eternal praise. He finishes with this, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. This great God who planned our salvation in eternity past and has brought it to bear in the present will be worth and worthy of eternal praise for all eternity. So as we go from this place, as we come into a new year, as we face struggles and difficulties, as we walk the narrow path, let us look to him who is able to keep us from stumbling. 
And let us offer our lives as a glorious sacrifice of praise as we seek to follow our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. As we flee from these lives of sensuality and cling to Him and trust in Him. And may this be our song, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion before all time and now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen.